Written and read by Oliver Gray. Chapter 10. If he'd given a bit more thought to it, Ben mightn't have been so optimistic. He was, after all, going to be hanging out with someone who'd been recently bereaved in the most horrible way. But he sensed a toughness and inner strength in Lucy Cruz that made him feel it would be all right. He couldn't explain it, but for some reason he felt that they had a kind of affinity. As he drove his surprisingly large hire car towards Austin, he couldn't wait to see her again. Lucy had offered to let him stay in her house. From what he could understand, this would have meant sleeping in Corey's bed, which he thought was a bit ghoulish. Besides, he was only weeks away from getting married, so he wasn't very sure it would be appropriate to share a home with Lucy at all. Daft, really, and very British, because in the free and easy environment of Austin, nobody could have even noticed far less cared. So Ben had booked himself into the Super 8 Hotel on Highway 35, which his GPS system efficiently led him to. As he stepped out of the air-conditioned car, the heat hit him like a steamroller. He'd once been on holiday to Greece, but this heat was something else. It was deeply penetrating and soul-warming, the perfect antidote to a chilly and damp English spring. He checked into his room, an enormous affair which contained, to his amazement, two huge queen-size beds, as well as a massive TV, a writing desk, a large bathroom and the obligatory trouser press, plus a devastatingly effective air-conditioning system. You didn't get hotels like that in Wiltshire. Ben woke on Wednesday morning to a less-than-satisfactory breakfast of dishwater tea and a hard bagel with some gunge representing butter. As arranged, Lucy met him in the foyer, smiling as she ran towards him. The embrace lasted a little longer than expected, her arms around his neck as she kissed his cheek. He could feel her fragile body through the gossamer, thin, cotton dress she wore. Was he feeling a thrill of excitement, he asked himself. Don't be silly, you're almost a married man. But he was relieved because he had half expected Lucy to appear with a muscle-bound, hunky Texan boyfriend in tow. Ben related his breakfast experience. Don't worry, we'll sort that out tomorrow. But for now, we've got to go and collect your badge. As she manoeuvred her pickup through the traffic towards the Austin Convention Centre, Lucy explained what was going to happen. She'd listed Ben as official staff because he would be helping out with the tribute concert. Official staff? That sounds a bit scary. No problem, Ben. You won't have much to do. The convention centre was a huge futuristic building in the middle of town. It was already crawling with people signing in and collecting their credentials. It was here, explained Lucy, that the trade part of the festival took place, with business seminars and keynote speeches by industry insiders. As if on cue, Ben nearly fainted, as a tall figure in skinny black jeans strode past. It was Chrissy Hind of the Pretenders, exuding that elusive star aura as she headed for some kind of meeting. Wow, she nearly touched me, enthused Ben. Almost, but not quite, deadpanned Lucy. After a lengthy queuing session, Ben found himself in possession of a platinum pass on a lanyard round his neck, complete with a mugshot of himself. Ben Walker, staff, it declared. He'd rarely felt so important, or indeed valued. You won't need that till tomorrow, said Lucy. Today we're going to have some fun. I'm going to return your compliment and show you round. But in the next few days, you'll get to know every corner of Austin. So today we're going to explore the great outdoors. Lunchtime found them basking in the sunshine on one of the balconies at the Oasis at Lake Travis, an outdoor restaurant consisting of tiers of decking clinging to the hillside above the glittering waters. 
still jet-lagged and generally baffled at being in America for the very first time, just 48 hours after serving his last customer in the narrowboat, on a dingy, drizzly March evening in Wiltshire, Ben felt vaguely dizzy and strangely euphoric. A beer helped encourage that feeling. Lucy laughed as he ordered a Budweiser. We don't drink that stuff here. The gourmet treat that was the chilli burger he tucked into was almost orgasmic. He truly never tasted anything like it, as it melted in his mouth in a guilty, cholesterol-packed ten minutes of culinary joy. Below them, speedboats crisscrossed the lake from jetties attached to mansions with swimming pools. Austin, explained Lucy, was Nirvana to dot-com millionaires seeking the quiet life. As they ate, Lucy told him more about the tribute gig. Ben's fears of a maudlin atmosphere melted away as Lucy explained the plans. We wanted to be positive, forward-looking event, packed with friends and fans. Initially, we were going to stage it at Antone's. It's a big cavernous blue venue in Austin, really famous. But we got cold feet that we might not be able to fill it. So we've gone to Saturday night at the Continental Club. What's that? Oh, it's a great place. It's a really historic venue near where I live on South Congress. They say that Elvis Presley played there in the 50s, but I don't know if it's true. Anyway, it's appropriate because Corey and his friends often perform there. Sounds ideal. Yes, and what's more, it's sold out in no time, so we've added an extra show on the Sunday. And do you want me to tell you something exciting? asked Lucy. Of course. For the Sunday show, the Grams are reforming. This news took Ben a few moments to assimilate. How could the Grams reform without Corey Zander? But of course, lots of bands reunite with one or other original member. How would this come about? Well, we asked the Wilson brothers so that they could contact the ex-members. They're all still there in the Tahlequah area, and they were all up for it. And guess who's going to be Corey? Bruce Springsteen? Prince? joked Ben. Nearly. We've got Chuck Prophet to do it. This was incredible news. The ex-green on red guitarist was the perfect choice, being a near-contemporary of Corey and performing similar music. The whole thing, added Lucy, was being done on a wing and a prayer, with one rehearsal, but MP3s had been exchanged and arrangement learned. For the remaining three grams, this would be the first time they had played together in nearly a quarter of a century. In the afternoon, Lucy had another treat for Ben. We're going to be spending the next few days indoors in sweaty venues, she told him. So now we're going to go some fresh air and healthy activity. By this, she meant Zilker Park, a beautiful green open space near the Colorado River, Austin's lung. First, they strolled among the trees by the river. Healthy-looking youngsters, mainly students from Texas University, said Lucy, jogged past in all the requisite gear, while below them, rowing eights glided along the river, cutting symmetrical oar holes in the water. Then Lucy led him up the hill, with the promise of a surprise suitable for little boys. This was the Zilka Zephyr, a pleasure train which chugged around the park for a mile or so. Ben closed his eyes as the lonesome whistle rang out. Yes, he did feel like a child again. The mystery of why Lucy had emailed him in Winchester a few days earlier, asking him to bring swimming gear with him, was now solved. Swimming trunks for a rock festival? Not exactly. Their destination was Barton Springs, a gorgeous, refreshing, fresh-water swimming pool carved into the rocks at the edge of the park. As Ben struggled to get into his trunks under a towel, Lucy had already peeled off her dress to reveal a green bikini and had dived into the water. The shock as Ben joined her, somewhat more cautiously, was electric. In the blazing sunshine, the water was icy cold, initially agonising, then bracing, 
then fantastically invigorating as they swam up and down, occasionally stopping to splash each other like children. Ben's lily-white body stood out a mile among the cool youngsters who populated the neat grass lawns surrounding the pool. The men were all muscular and covered in arty-looking tattoos, as were most of the film star-like girls. Almost all of them were in clinches, and most of them seemed to have a joint on the go. This was absolutely not the image Ben had had of Texas, but he had already read that Austin was not at all representative of the state. It was a pleasingly anachronistic oasis of liberalism in the middle of a desert of republicanism. As they lay on the bank in the sun discussing the days ahead, Lucy leant towards Ben, her long hair brushing his face. She put her hand on his cheek. Is that cold? Yes, but I like it. He'd sort of known it was coming, but nonetheless his body shivered with excitement as she gently kissed him. He could have pulled away, protesting that he was engaged, but instead he responded. He'd never felt like this before, and was entirely in her power. The intensity increased over the next few minutes, as they explored each other's bodies under the conveniently placed towel, until Lucy pulled back, looking at Ben's face intently. Bloody hell, said Ben. Don't worry, smiled Lucy. Just relax. Whatever happens in Austin, stays in Austin. They dined on blissful fajitas at a Mexican restaurant called Giros, nearly opposite Lucy's house on South Congress. Ben was agonising a little about whether he should tell her that he couldn't get romantically involved when he was about to marry someone else. But Lucy brought him two margaritas. So potent were these hallucinogenic cocktails that he just sat back in a haze of happiness and abandoned himself to the moment. I know what you're thinking, Ben, but you shouldn't worry. We're only having fun and nobody's getting hurt. She dropped him back at the Super 8 at midnight, promising him the breakfast of his life. And so it was. At ten the next day, she took him out to an organic diner on the highway called Starseeds, where they feasted on a vegetarian breakfast and drank gallons of free top-up coffee. We call it bottomless, explained Lucy. Anyway, that's enough relaxing for now. The show's kick off today, so we have work to do. Work on that first festival day for Ben wasn't too onerous. His job was to stand on the corner of 6th Street and Red River, near the Emo's All-Stars venue, and hand out flyers advertising the Corey Zander tribute concert at the Continental. There were some tickets left for the second show. Not everyone knew that it had been added, and it is important that it should sell out. Street Corner was an ideal spot for Ben to get a feel of how the festival worked. Consulting his programme, he saw that the official events started in the early evening and went on till 1am. These were often record company showcases and featured some surprisingly big stars playing in little venues. During the day, however, there were also hundreds of unofficial shows going on, which you could only find out through the grapevine on the internet or from posters and flyers. These were filled with hundreds of bands in Austin partly to socialise and partly with a dream of being discovered, increasingly unlikely in the modern music industry. Basically, it was a massive four-day party accompanied by deafening music. As he handed out his flyers, Ben made friend after friend. It was all so unlike the drab, unfriendly UK. Within hours, he'd exchanged phone and email details with several people and found out about various secret showcase gigs. He'd also been told about good restaurants and got advice about the best local beers to drink. Priority number one for him was to get into tonight's show at Stubbs Barbecue, yards from where he was standing, where the pretenders were headlining. 
Lucy had said she would be busy all day, so Ben was free to do what he wanted. Warned by new friends, he knew that the cues, or lines, to get into Stubbs would be huge, and that his platinum badge would not necessarily give him priority over other badge and wristband holders. So he lined up outside the fence at six o'clock. Already, one of the support bands could be heard striking up inside. It was a young UK band called Broken Links. He'd done the right thing. By 7.30 he was in, and had negotiated his way to the very front. It wasn't easy, as the whole site, one of Austin's few outdoor venues, was in a slope and covered in rubble, rocks and steps. He spotted James Walborn, the Pretenders League guitarist in the wings. He'd once met James at the Windmill Venue in Brixton, London, and was tempted to call out to him, but realised with an inward smile that people like James must meet hundreds of people and certainly wouldn't recognise him. As the other support acts played, Ben, with the help of a few Lone Star beers and the odd tequila, felt warmer and warmer, surrounded by, nay, squashed together with scores of like-minded music lovers. Ten o'clock on the dot, the pretenders hit the stage, the blue stage lights emphasising Chrissy Hines' features and the rock poses of the guitarists. Drummer Martin Chambers, as usual, was surrounded by huge plexiglass screens. It was a special showcase occasion, so there was none of that dreaded here's the new song stuff, but an uninterrupted flow of greatest hits. I Go to Sleep gave Ben goose pimples, and by the time the band climaxed with brass in pocket, Ben was hoarse from cheering and shouting for more. But a strict timetable was in place, and there was to be no encore. Thursday was a day for Ben and Lucy to spend together. There were special shows going on that Ben could never have heard about if he hadn't had Lucy's inside information. At a sweaty dive called Headhunters on Red River, a record label showcase for Canadian bands was in full swing, accompanied by free tacos and tequila. Ben had never heard of any of the artists, but loved them all. Then the two of them took a bumpy bike rickshaw right out to the edge of town, where in a roadhouse-type venue called the Mean-Eyed Cat, a party was being thrown by the UK magazine Mojo. Bands that would have cost a lot of money to see in the UK, such as Field Music, the Vaccines and the Jim Jones Review, were playing here for free, inches away from them, through a decrepit, crackly PA. It was hard to describe the excitement. Ben was desperate to text people at home describing his feelings, but he knew no one would understand. By his side all day, gently holding his hand as if it were the most natural thing to do, was Lucy. In the evening they went to a billiard hall in town called Buffalo Billiards. In downtown Austin, at South by Southwest time, virtually every shop and bar turned itself into an impromptu music venue. The cacophony, as they pushed their way through the milling crowds on 6th Street, was like a musical tower of Babel, amplified sounds coming from all directions and colliding in the middle of the street. Buffalo Billiards was rammed because the occasion was a Texas showcase featuring Centromatic and Slubberbone, both from nearby Denton, and Headliners Midlake, a band now also popular in Europe. Here, Ben and Lucy handed out the last of their flyers. Their job was done because Lucy received an email on her phone to confirm that both shows had now sold out. Most shows at South by Southwest were not pre-bookable and admission was free to badge holders, but an exception had been made for these ones as they were charity events in aid of the newly founded Corey Zander Foundation. The brainchild of Lucy, this was to subsidise educational activities for the children of musicians. On Friday, Ben and Lucy had to meet early. A rehearsal was to take place at a bar called Jovitas. 
Showcase events were due to take place there from 1pm, so the rehearsal had been set for an ungodly 9am. Chuck Prophet, himself due to play at Jovitas that afternoon, was a renowned teetotaler and by far the most alert person there. Ben found himself drinking ice-cold Dos Ikis beer at ten o'clock in the morning, a feeling of delicious decadence. Ben was formally introduced to Jesse, Mark and Will, the remaining members of the Grams. We couldn't believe it when we heard the news. It's so incredibly sad. It's just crazy. How the hell did it happen? Who did it and why? Well, we know who did it, but no one knows why. He was just a victim of random violence, an unfortunate person caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. The trial should take place sometime in April. None of it makes any sense, I'm afraid. My biggest fear is that the guy might get off on a technicality. Once the rehearsal had got going, Ben and Lucy left. They didn't want to get in the way, and they didn't want to spoil the enjoyment of Sunday's show for themselves. The Oklahoma guys had prepared well, and Chuck, taking Corey's role, was the consummate professional. So the two lovebirds, as Jesse described them, causing both of them to blush and Ben to issue a flat denial, spent the day at yet another suburban bar, this time Maria's Taco Express. Here, local icon Alejandro Escobedo was holding his annual musical picnic, featuring a bewildering array of over a dozen bands that he'd met on his constant tours of the US and invited to Austin. The dapper Alejandro compared the day in his bootlace tie, black suit and shiny winkle pickers, while Lucy and Ben feasted on enchiladas and tried unsuccessfully to go easy on the iced margaritas. That evening was mind-blowing for Ben, as he and Lucy wangled their way into the tiny Cedar Street courtyard for a top-secret show by the Flaming Lips. As the confetti rained down and the balloons bounced, Ben found himself holding up the crouched figure of Wayne Coyne as he rolled out over the crowd on his giant transparent pod. Then he held Lucy tight as Coyne sang the saddest song ever written. Do you realise that everyone you know one day will die? In view of tomorrow's planned event, it could scarcely have been more poignant, and both of them wept, their tears mingling among the falling kaleidoscope of floating paper. Much of the following morning was spent at the Continental Club, preparing for the evening. In the afternoon, Ben's platinum pass ensured that he was able to return to the convention centre for Chrissy Hines' keynote speech. She talked for 45 minutes on the topic of ethics in the music industry, likening some industry business practices to people clubbing seal clubs to death in order to make coats out of their skins. It wasn't what the external management types wanted to hear, and there were a few sharp intakes of breath. Ben found the entire thing spellbinding. The Saturday lineup was chalked up on the blackboard beside the bar at the Continental. Freedy Johnson, Kimi Rhodes, John D. Graham, Amy Boone, Alejandro Escobedo, and the Resentments, the last being a supergroup of local musicians. Ben had to do an hour's shift on the door, but even from there he didn't miss a minute of the music. The pattern was similar for most acts, and each of them played their normal set, interspersed with one or two Xander songs, and of course, memories and anecdotes, many of them referring affectionately to the trouble his weakness for the ladies could get him into. The mood, as had been the intention, was celebratory rather than sad. Cues formed early on Sunday afternoon for the Grams reunion. It was the hottest ticket in town, and a large blackboard outside proclaimed sold out, no badges. This meant that scores of casual industry people who hadn't bought advance tickets were turned away. 
Ben's job was to tell them, sorry, you can't come in without a ticket. The irony wasn't lost on him. Only months before, he hadn't been able to give Corey's under tickets away. Two supports played before the Grams hit the stage. Chuck Prophet was by far the coolest-looking person in the band. Jesse and Mark both now sported bushy beards and a few excess pounds, while drummer Will was completely bald. Chuck was clearly representing not the recent unhealthy and overweight Sander, but the svelte, tight-trousered rocker of his youth. The preparation had paid off, as they blasted to everyone's amazement through a couple of ancient Chuck's tracks, a few songs from Corey's solo career, and an almost complete run-through of the Grams' Desert Grave album. Truth to tell, Chuck Prophet was a far better guitarist than Corey had ever been. As they returned for a second encore, people in the crowd were shouting out for mad and bad. Ah, oh, sorry, we don't know that one, said Chuck into the microphone with a grin. Ha! Only kidding, he added. As with a Townsend windmill, he crashed his telecaster into the opening power cord. There wasn't a dry eye in the house. Any nonsense about a curse of Xander certainly hadn't taken effect on this triumphant evening. At the end, with condensation running down the walls, scores of people stayed behind to discuss the evening and swap memories, but Lucy took hold of Ben's hand. Tonight you're coming home with me. Ben hesitated. Don't worry, Ben, she laughed. I won't make you sleep in Corey's bed. There's plenty of room in mine. Ben woke before Lucy in the morning, his mind a buzzing storm of conflicting emotions. He turned his head to make sure it hadn't been a dream, but no, the blonde locks on the pillow confirmed the truth. Sleeping with Lucy had been like nothing he had ever experienced before. The lithe tenderness an amazing lesson to an inexperienced person like him. It was the sensual naturalness of it that had thrilled, amazed and consumed him. For a few minutes he lay back and basked in the memory. Now he knew what an afterglow was. But just a few minutes later, familiar insecurities and feelings of guilt began to intrude. What he had just experienced contrasted so much with the business-like formality of sex with Rosie. What had he done? Was it right? Was it wrong? Could he love two people at the same time? Maybe he didn't love Rosie after all. His feelings now for Lucy were quite overwhelming and he didn't know what to do. I know what you're thinking, I always do came a voice from beside him. Lucy kissed him gently. But I don't want you to think about it today. We have a very important job to do. We're going for a picnic. As they drove out of the city, Ben felt as if they were in a western film as the roads became dustier and the landscape more empty. A sign said, Welcome to Texas Hill Country, as they approached Fredericksburg, an extraordinary town in which everything seemed to be German, including, surreally in this heat, a Christmas shop complete with sleighs and santas. A few miles further on, they entered Enchanted Rock National Park, and eventually rounded a bend to gaze upon the rock itself, a huge pink mound which looked like a turtle. As Lucy removed the picnic basket and another bag from the boot, or trunk as she charmingly called it, Ben was reading the display board, which gave details of the Enchanted Rock. Humans have visited here for over 10,000 years. The rock is a massive, granite exfoliation dome that rises 420 feet above the ground. Tonkawa Indians believed that ghost fires flickered the top, and they heard weird creaking and groaning sounds which geologists say resulted from the rocks heating by day and contracting in the night. A conquistador, captured by the Tonkawa, 
described how he escaped by losing himself in the rock area, giving rise to an Indian legend of a pale man swallowed by a rock and reborn as one of their own. He explained that the rock wove spells. When I was swallowed by the rock, I joined the many spirits who enchant this place. Ben felt like moaning and groaning himself as the couple struggled up the trail that led to the summit, the rock red-hot beneath their feet. Lucy had made some vegetable wraps, and they ate them and drank copious amounts of bottled water. Then she stood up, reaching into the other bag and pulling out her father's urn. I wanted you to be here for this, Ben. We're going to scatter his ashes. Why here? asked Ben, although he already knew the answer. Because it's an enchanted place. I know the Native Americans who lived here weren't Choctaws, but I still felt Dad would feel at home here, among all the other spirits. It certainly felt right, as the ashes blew in the breeze and settled among the scrub growing on the pink granite. The two of them closed their eyes for a moment. Goodbye, Corey, said Lucy. Goodbye, Corey, repeated Ben. This is where you belong. It was time for Ben to go home, although he didn't really know where home was. His eyes had been opened to another world, and his confusion was complete. other books are also available in print and Kindle editions. For more information, head to olivergray.com. This audiobook was a DC 10 Tonight production.